When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to First Move. We begin with breaking news from France. Three people have been killed in a knife attack at a church in the city of Nice. The mayor has said that everything points to the attack being an act of terrorism. France has raised its security alert status to the highest level. Cyril Vanier is live in Paris with the details. Cyril, what more do we know about what happened? Well, Julia, we are expecting the president to address the nation shortly. He is in Nice or will be arriving shortly in Nice and we'll find out more at that point. But what we know for the moment is that around 9 a.m. local time, an assailant entered the Notre Dame Basilica. That's the basilica right in the commercial heart of Nice, this southern city. And he was wielding a knife. He slit the throat of one person. He stabbed a second to death, injured a third. And that person managed to flee with the basilica, but later died of her wounds. So the death soul stands at three. Three people killed in this horrific knife attack that is now being treated as a terror attack by French authorities. Law enforcement were quickly alerted. They were, according to witnesses, quickly on the scene and opened fire. They shot the assailant. They did not kill the assailant, who is now receiving medical care. The mayor of Nice, who was uh, on the site of the attack shortly after it happened, said that the assailant said the words repeatedly, Allah Akbar, God is great in Arabic. And that he said those words even as uh, the assailant was receiving medical care. Um, at this stage, we know precious little uh, about the assailant, both the identity, the motives. As I said, it's being treated as a terror attack. And there is... There is a very significant context here. This is the third terror attack in just over a month in France. And the first two were connected to the publication or republication, I should say, of satirical cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Whether or not this third attack is linked is still too early and has not been determined. No, sir, but you're absolutely right. The context here is critical. Thank you for bringing us up to speed there with developments. Cyril Vanier speaking to us there and we will keep you updated on any further developments as we get them for now we'll bring it back to business with a quick look at what we're seeing for global stock markets and i can tell you u.s futures are volatile but turning higher now 
after more than a 3% pullback yesterday on health and election concerns. Europe also mostly lower at this moment. Investors still trying to digest news of more stringent lockdown measures in both Germany and in France too. Strong earnings from Royal Dutch Shell, Volkswagen, Credit Suisse also helping lend a little bit of support to uh, Europe earlier. But as you can see, it's red arrows across the board there too. We also have breaking economic data this morning out of the United States. Third quarter GDP growth in the U.S. coming in at an annualized rate of some 33.1%. That is by far the fastest growth recorded. It follows the equally historic drop in GDP for the second quarter, of course, down by some 31%. It's more helpful to look at these numbers, I think, on a quarter-by-quarter basis. By that metric, GDP rose some 7.4% since the spring lockdowns. The pace of the recovery clearly surprising most analysts. So the reality is that just to give you some sense of uh, space and context here, the economy remains three and a half percent smaller than it was at the end of 2019. It sounds minor, but it's approximately as far below the peak as we were during the worst points of the Great Recession. Just to give you a sense as well, what else is going on? Initial jobless claims remain near record highs too. A further 750,000 plus people filing fresh claims for jobless benefits last week. More than 22 million Americans still getting some form of jobless assistance. So it's a strong growth recovery, but plenty of challenges remain as we push into the fourth quarter. Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. economist, Ellen Zentner, joins us now. Ellen, great to have you on the show with us. Your context, please, and thoughts in light of the data today. Yeah, so GDP coming in about as expected that it was going to be this explosive growth in the third quarter. And as you said, a, a record drop followed by a record rise. Um, and so does that mean that we can breathe a sigh of relief and, and we're just fine? Um, I do take it with uh, to heart that uh, this is a much faster recovery than most people expected, uh, but it's incomplete. So we are about 97% of the way back to our pre-COVID levels for the economy. Um, and that's great. We think we'll get 100% of the way back uh, by the second quarter of next year. That's one of the most rapid recoveries that we've had. But let's look under the hood of items like in the labor market, where yes, the unemployment rate has come down sharply. Um, and we expect it to continue to fall. Um, but women's labor force participation rate has fallen many dropping out of the labor market to take care of children. Will they come back? Uh, uh, minorities, unemployment rate rising uh, to astronomical heights after uh, such progress made pre-COVID. Uh, and you don't want these people to stay out of the labor market for long because the probability they re-enter drops sharply the longer they're unemployed. And so there is more work to be done especially on the part of fiscal policymakers in order to help quicken the recovery even more. Yeah, I mean, there's two key challenges there, as you point out, the, the fiscal policy side and the support for people that are out of work and simply can't get back into the workplace. And of course, controlling the virus too. And we're seeing case rises pop up all over the United States at this moment. Ellen, you hoped or at least predicted that we would see around one and a half to two trillion dollars worth of additional financial aid in September of this year. And clearly it didn't happen. That assumption allowed you to bring forward when you thought we'd get back to where we were before the pandemic hit to the second quarter of next year. In light of the fact that we didn't get that stimulus, how long does it take us now to get back simply to where we started? 
So believe it or not, still in the second quarter of hmm. next year. Um, so the initial thought was we need more stimulus. That stimulus didn't come. Obviously, the payback or that fading fiscal impulse would drag on the economy. Now, growth has slowed sharply in the fourth quarter. We in, we are in the midst of it now. You can't strip that much money out of household pocketbooks uh, without expecting some kind of slowdown in spending. Um, but what's happened since September is that when those benefits expired at the end of July, households continued to spend in August, they continued to spend in September, they continued to spend in October based on the high frequency data that we're getting, not the least of which a big Amazon Prime Day is helping and some other aggressive of tactics from retailers to push sales. But consumer confidence has also risen. Now, how is that possible when we just took a lot of income away by letting those federal supplemental benefits expire? And it's because households built up an incredible cushion of savings when the first CARES Act went into place, replacing all of that lost income, yet we couldn't spend all of it because we were in lockdown. And so that's helped households, especially the lower income households, float for a time by drawing down that savings. Now, the further you get away from that expiration of benefits without putting in further stimulus, the more you're going to weigh on consumer spending. Um, but spending has been so strong because of that, uh, that the tails of the CARES Act, the first CARES Act has been carrying us through. And so we are still on track and believe it or believe me, I was surprised as well. We are still on track to hit pre-COVID levels in the second quarter of next year. But but again, you know, and, and Morgan Stanley has been calling for that very rapid, more V-shaped recovery for quite some time. Uh, but let's put that aside, right? We can, we, we've, uh, you know, that has come to light. It's come true. We've had a very sharp recovery here. I'm concerned about what happens beyond that in order to get into the cracks of underserved areas of, of the population, right. uh, of the inequities exposed by COVID. And that's why I wanna stress that there is more room for fiscal stimulus here. Yeah, the aggregate does not tell the story of uh, those that have lost their jobs aren't coming back necessarily into the, the workforce and exactly. uh, the suffering that goes on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, Talk to me about what clients are asking you. What what are they saying at this moment and, and how uncertain are they, despite you saying, look, we're still on track for recovery by the second quarter of next year. How concerned are they, whether it's election, whether it's lack of agreement over further fiscal stimulus, whether it's the, the out of control sense as far as uh, the virus is concerned? Yeah, so I think we can look at the volatility in markets and see just how concerned clients are. Uh, you know, when, when elections are close, or uh, even if even if the the polling doesn't or the uh, probability the betting markets suggest that it's not very uh, close race, normally that would give people uh, more confidence uh, in how to invest around the election outcome. Um, but you know the the polling results from 2016 uh, having misguided uh, means that people are not willing to trust. Uh, the, the betting markets or the polling this time. So that's make it, made it difficult to plan until you actually get election uh, results. So that's created volatility. Um, the virus is still the number one risk to the economy. Uh, and so any expectation that we get back to pre-COVID levels uh, by the second quarter of next year, uh, you know, and it's tied to fiscal stimulus as well, because there are some election outcomes that suggest we only get further fiscal stimulus if the economy goes south or 
financial markets fall apart. And that would be related to the virus as well. So the, the path of the virus, you know, our uh, Matt Harrison, our biotech analyst is expecting the second wave to accelerate. Um, he's expecting that, you know, as we get further and further into the winter, uh, we do still seem to be on track for positive developments with vaccine and rolling it out to vulnerable populations by the end of the year. But we're lo not looking until June of, of next year uh, or July before the population gets the second dose, which is when many will assume that that we're getting into the more safe uh, levels. You know, does that all play out exactly as planned? You know, that that's it's a virus. We don't know how to deal with this um, and it could throw us for a loop at any time. What I am encouraged about is that we've seen households and this is partly why the recovery has been as strong as it has been so far. Households have found a, a way to engage in economic activity while still feeling safe. Uh, and that's allowed that more robust consumer spending and more uh, jobs to come back faster uh, than expected. Um, and households are looking less at the acceleration in cases, more so at the outcome. Is the outcome better? Is the death rate out of those cases still falling? Uh, can we at least have some sort of treatment that helps uh, uh, the, the chances of, of getting through COVID? Uh, uh, and so that, that's why we haven't seen as big of a dent in households. It's coming more from investors assuming that this could hit the economy and so creating that volatility in markets. And again, we look toward Europe, right, to extrapolate what might happen in the U.S. And that's got everyone concerned here in the U.S. Yeah, 100%. Bell, and fascinating to hear what you say in terms of consumption behaviour and consumers and their expectations as far as this virus is concerned. You have to wonder whether it plays into the politics that we see five days out from a presidential election. Great to get your insights. Ellen Zentner, Chief US Economist at Morgan Stanley. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, exactly as Ellen was talking about there, the US reporting more than 76,000 new coronavirus cases on Wednesday. That's the third highest single day total for of the five worst days since the pandemic began have actually come this week. Cases are rising in a record 41 states. The Coronavirus Task Force is warning of, quote, unrelenting broad community spread in the Midwest, Upper Midwest and West. Meanwhile, in Europe, Germany and France have both announced new four-week lockdowns as coronavirus infections continue to spiral. Let's get to Paris once again for the latest on this. Jim Bitterman joins us now. Jim, great to have you with us. The big difference, I think, between what we've seen announced in France in particular and what we saw in March and April is trying to find that balance between protecting the economy and balancing the health risks. Absolutely right. In fact, President Macron spotlighted that last night when he was talking to the nation. He basically said they're going to try to keep as many businesses as possible open, uh, but that does not include non-essential business. It means that bars, restaurants uh, will close, theaters will close, uh, any kind of social gathering will be canceled. But they will try to keep the schools open. This would be schools up to through uh, high school. Universities will have to teach at a distance with teleconferencing. So. 
They're trying to keep the economy rolling over. They're going to keep the construction industry going as much as possible. And they're trying to make exceptions where they can. But for everyone else, it's going to be a real lockdown. And you have to uh, stay within a kilometer of your house and can only go out for one hour per day, uh, except if you've got a good reason, like medical reasons or visiting a sick or elderly relative or something like that. But in any case, it's going to be tough and it's going to last at least four weeks. Uh, President Macron said he said they'd reevaluate things in three, in about uh, uh, two weeks. But in fact, uh, this being a country that doesn't lack in pessimism, everybody's saying four weeks, it could be six weeks, it could be two months. Uh, nobody is really betting on it coming off in just four weeks' time. Julian? Uh, we just have to hope and uh, see what happens. Jim Bisman, thank you so much for that update there. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Tropical storm Zeta sweeping through the southeastern United States after making landfall in Louisiana as a Category 2 hurricane. The storm knocked down trees and power lines and flooded streets. At least two people have lost their lives and more than two million are without power across five states. In Vietnam, rescue workers are scrambling to find survivors buried under landslides triggered by Typhoon Molav. Dozens of people are feared dead. Molav struck the central coastline on Wednesday. Taiwan has reached a new milestone in the fight against coronavirus. It's now gone some 200 days without any local transmissions of COVID-19 cases. Taiwan moved quickly when the pandemic began, shutting down borders with mainland China and developing a contract tracing system, as we've discussed on the show. All right, coming up on First Move in these volatile times, Mohammed El-Aryan is here to explain the mood music on Wall Street. And Joe Biden's former communications chief, Jay Carney, sings the praises of Amazon. Don't miss it. It's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. futures are inching higher. It comes after Wednesday's 3.5% pullback, the worst drop in the S&P 500 since June. We begin today's session for the S&P 500, some 8.5% off record highs, just to give you some context here for what we're seeing. The U.S. today also reporting a record rise in third quarter growth numbers, 33.1% on an annualized basis. This number coming in line with expectations. I think investors are more focused at the moment on the economic implications of a COVID second wave and how it will affect growth going forward. All this, of course, coming just five days before U.S. presidential elections, with some 75 million people having already cast their votes. Mohamed Al-Irian joins us now. He's chief economic advisor at Alliance. He's also the president of Queen's College at Cambridge University. Mohamed, fantastic to have you on the show. I guess we shouldn't be surprised by what seemingly is a bit of a reality check here for investors in light of COVID cases and proximity to pivotal elections. We shouldn't, Julia. I mean, the evidence coming out of Europe, mm. which I think is a forward indicator for the U.S., is, is pretty frightening. It tells you that these cases spread very rapidly in the second wave, that the trace, test, and tracking gets overwhelmed quickly, and that it's very difficult to have a focused approach. So you end up, end up with some sort of lockdown. And I think that that is a reality check for a lot of investors. 
I mean, what we're seeing in Europe, and I was just having the discussion with Jim Bitterman over in France, is trying to find this calibration, really, between managing the health crisis and protecting the economy and perhaps learning from what we saw and did in March, April, May of, of this year. We still haven't found that balance, Mohammed, as far as I'm concerned. We haven't because it's inherently difficult in itself, but there's a third element. You know, we're trying to find the balance between public health, normal economic activity, or as normal as can be, and personal freedoms. So it's, it's, it's a really complicated thing to solve. And if you can't deal with one issue and say, I'm not gonna follow this, I'm not gonna care about this, um, it's very hard to solve, and that's what we're finding. And the next story, Julia, is gonna, about people, is gonna be about people pushing back, people feeling that they don't wanna go through this again. So we don't have any silver bullet, unfortunately, to meet all three criteria. You're expecting potential protests, whether in Europe or across states in the United States? I am, for the simple reason that this is not just a big shock, it's a very uneven shock. Um, it steals opportunity from people. And it tends to take opportunity away from people who are most vulnerable to begin with. So people get angry, and rightly so. I understand why they get angry. So yeah, this is a very delicate economic, social, political cocktail that I hope we're going to find our way through it. But I do worry that it's going to be hard for a while. Do you think the reaction would have been any different, Mohammed? And we can talk about market volatility, but perhaps more importantly, far more importantly, actually, the social implications here, if Congress would have managed to have got its act together and provided further financial aid to people? Yes, you can't both take away your income and not support it with something else, right? So, so people worry about their livelihood. And if you don't provide income support at the same time as their livelihood is being taken away by what they see as a government decision, it's not really, it's a health decision, but they see it as a government decision, it, it becomes harder, yes. Asia, nations in Asia manage this. So there's a question to be asked there about the kind of democracy or not, perhaps in the case of China, that did manage to, to handle this crisis better. But I just wonder, from an economics point of view, if you've got the United States slowing, if you've got European nations slowing as we push through the, the fourth quarter, is there enough of a counterbalance in terms of the economies across Asia to, to support global growth? So two things. First, Asia has been able to do it better because in their case, their equation is not as complicated. Hmm. So China can, can deal with personal freedom by directive. Taiwan, Korea, Japan have a sense of collective responsibility that allows that to be realigned quickly with health and economic priority. So there's a reason why they do better, but be careful. They have sprinted ahead in, in the growth rate, certainly in 2020 and the beginning of 2021, but they still rely on the global economy. So their recovery is also gonna become more challenging as you go deeper into 2021, if Europe and the United States have not recovered. Yeah, it just means more stimulus. When does the buy on dips mentality kick in? I can imagine volatility in the short term. We have to wait and see what happens with the election. But particularly in light of what we're sort of indicating here is going to be yet more stimulus simply to buy the recovery. What does it mean for investors? And that's the big question. 
It's no longer about fundamentals. Markets have been decoupled from fundamentals for such a long time. It's about conditioning. It's about three things. Buy the tip, there is no alternative to stocks, and fear of missing out. And those three things have driven every single rebound. And people are asking the question, how deep is that conditioning? A lot of it depends on central banks. But Julian, no one knows for sure. That is a psychological thing. And it's very hard to determine whether this continuing conditioning is going gonna, is gonna to prevail as we go forward. How does this conditioning impact what we're going to see over the next, who knows, let's call it two weeks into this election? Mohammed, what's priced in your mind in terms of election results and how should we watch and frame what happens in terms of volatility over the next two weeks? You know, I, I smile because here are three different narratives I've heard about the elections and markets. One, a Trump re-election is a good thing. He's pro-business. And then when it became less certain that that's what's going to happen, I heard a divided government is the best thing for markets because government stays out of the way. Now, the narrative is a blue wave is good for markets because we're going to get a massive stimulus. The reality is no one knows. This has been price action led by conditioning that then looks for a narrative rather than a narrative that pushes price action. The causality has gotten upside down and it's very difficult. I don't think much is priced in, honestly. I don't even think the uncertainty is priced in. Mm. It goes back to your mentality about uh, conditioning stimulus all the way the fundamentals the politics perhaps don't matter when there's an ultimate backstop Mohammed, great to get your yes, uh, insights we shall see please go on if you if you want to uh I would just comment say, be, careful. be careful i mean there is a view out there that it doesn't matter when we get the stimulus as long as we get it but it matters you get the stimulus in january more companies will go bankrupt between now and january so it does matter yeah, it does matter. They should have acted before now. <laughs> Mohamed Alarian, the Chief Economic Advisor at Alliance. So thank you for joining us. And of course, the President of Queen's College, Cambridge University. The market opens next. Stay with us. to first move. US stock markets are up and running this Thursday. Let's take a look. We are seeing a mostly higher open. Oh, well, we'll see. The major averages attempting a bounce back after Wednesday's 3.5% drop. Well, you can see strength for the Nasdaq already here, up some ticks, tenths of 1%. A strong read on the third quarter growth numbers, also perhaps lending some support here, showing the United States economy expanding at a 33.1% annual rate, critical, after a Q2's 31% plunge. I'm sure the White House will be out later today calling it a V-shaped recovery. It is of sorts, but you've got to put context on that too. Economic activity remains some $700 billion below its prior peak. So we're talking around 3.5% in growth. Growth terms. In corporate earnings news, meanwhile, Samsung Electronics is reporting an almost 60% jump in profits, but it is warning of fourth quarter weakness. Ford, meanwhile, rallying after the carmaker reported a stronger than expected $2.4 billion quarterly profit driven by strong demand for pickups and SUVs. We've also got our second mega chip merger of the week. Marvel is buying data chip maker Infi for some $10 billion. The consolidation in that sector continues. 
Now, as the pandemic hangs over the final five days of a bitterly contentious presidential race, both Joe Biden and President Trump are heading to the battleground state of Florida. CNN's Arlette Sands is in Tampa with more. The fight for Florida takes center stage this morning with both President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden heading to the Sunshine State. The presidential candidates will hold competing events in Tampa just hours apart. For Trump, a campaign rally without social distancing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And Biden, a drive-in event where supporters will show up in their cars. The contrast in how the candidates are pushing for final votes, reflecting their outlooks on combating the coronavirus pandemic as new cases climb across most of the United States. The refusal of the Trump administration to recognize the reality we're living through at a time when almost a thousand Americans a day are dying every single day is an insult to every single person suffering from COVID-19 and every family who's lost a loved one. Biden highlighting just that after a briefing with health experts in his home state of Delaware. I'm not running in the false promise of being able to end this pandemic by flipping a switch. But what I can promise you is this. We will start on day one doing the right things. We'll let science drive our decisions. We will deal honestly with the American people. Meanwhile, Trump tried to scare supporters in Arizona, some wearing masks, but packed together. If you vote for Biden, it means no kids in school, no graduations, no weddings, no Thanksgiving, no Christmas, and no Fourth of July together. Other than that, you have a wonderful life. The president also looked to appeal to Nevada voters from an event just across the border due to the state's strict 250 person limit on outdoor gatherings. In Arizona, you're opened up, but Nevada, get your governor to open up your state, please. The Biden campaign also has sights set on the Sun Belt, sending vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris to Phoenix and Tucson, where she condemned Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The president of the United States is also the commander in chief who has then as his highest responsibility to concern himself with the health and safety of the American people. And on that count, Donald Trump failed. He failed us. All right. Uh, I just want to show you some uh, live pictures as we're seeing them now. Emmanuel Macron has now arrived in Nice. You can see him talking to uh, those outside where we saw what the mayor has called a, an act of terrorism this morning. Just talking to people there in light of the killing of three people earlier today in Nice. He's traveled back there just in the last hour or so. We'll continue to keep you abreast of any further developments on that story, of course, but just, just once again, you're seeing French President Emmanuel Macron on the scene now, outside the church, where three people lost their lives this morning. 
All right, let's bring it back to the presidential election. John Harwood now joins us from Washington. John, clearly it's all about the battleground states in these last few days. Florida, Joe Biden, President Trump as well. Also, President Trump, I was just looking at his schedule, heading to the Midwest on Friday, Wisconsin, Minnesota. These states were so pivotal to his election win in 2016. They were also facing skyrocketing COVID cases too. How do we see these two things playing out? Well, we think the skyrocketing COVID cases are hurting the president's prospects. Mm. Look at the state of Wisconsin, which is one that Democrats initially thought was going to be difficult to win back this year. Uh, President Trump won it narrowly over Hillary Clinton in 2016. That helped put him in the White House. They now have a extreme hotspot situation in Wisconsin. Uh, their uh, a big college football game involving the University of Wisconsin was uh, postponed uh, yesterday. Um, and we had a poll that came out yesterday that showed President Trump trailing by double digits. He is on the defensive. Uh, and that's really the theme of his campaign in the closing days in Florida and North Carolina, where he'll be today. He's trying to defend states that he won uh, in 2016. But where polls show him narrowly trailing Joe Biden, that is also the case in not just Wisconsin, but Michigan and Pennsylvania. Minnesota, which you mentioned, is one state that Hillary Clinton barely carried. The president had once thought that he had a significant chance of winning that back, but he's far behind in the polls. Uh, so he's facing a very difficult situation nationally. He looks to be in a deficit of eight to ten points. That's very large in the context of American presidential politics. So uh, he's got only a few days to close the gap and not great options for doing it. And, and John, we heard Dr. Fauci for the first time in the last 24 hours start talking about the prospect of a mask mandate. In the face of everything the United States has been through and likely to go through in the coming months, What's the likelihood that if Joe Biden wins this election, he follows through on that? Joe Biden has said that he does not know if he has the authority as president to impose a nationwide uh, mask mandate. He would explore that issue and do it if he felt he had the authority. But in the meantime, he would appeal to governors to implement a mask mandate. Whether he could get uh, governors in Republican states who've been following the lead of President Trump in resisting that step, is unclear, but uh, if he wins a resounding victory, which is what the polls would point to at the moment, and uh, COVID continues to spike, you would think that he would have some wind at his back in trying to persuade a larger chunk of the country than is now adhering to mask wearing to do so. Yeah, we shall see. John Harwood in Washington for us there. Thank you. All right, so up next, Primed as Amazon readies for the first holiday season since the pandemic began. We speak to Jake Carney, the company's senior vice president. Stay with us. That's next. first move, the European Union's two largest economies returning to lockdowns as coronavirus cases surge across the continent. Germany and France plan to enact their new measures in the upcoming days. The second wave and the restrictions are a one-two punch for companies heading into the holiday season too. And one of those is Amazon, which reported a record profit during the second quarter as online shopping soared. 
It also faces fresh challenges too, such as keeping workers safe and its supply chains intact. Joining us now, Jay Carney, Senior Vice President at Amazon and former White House Press Secretary to President Obama. Jay, always great to have you on the show. Let's start with Europe and what we're seeing there. How are you preparing in terms of, as you mentioned there, both supply chains, but also worker protections? Well, Julia, as, as you know, since March, we've taken extraordinary measures at Amazon across uh, our sites uh, around the world to uh, ensure that our employees are safe. We uh, have changed over 150 processes within our fulfillment centers, our warehouses, uh, to allow for social distancing, to uh, reduce the amount of uh, uh, density we have in our sites to uh, uh, make sure our facilities are clean, that our employees have all access uh, to the uh, uh, protective equipment they need, masks and gloves and sanitizer and the like. And what we've seen is that uh, as we put all those uh, processes in place and those changes in place, uh, while they've cost a lot of money, of course, uh, because of the expense involved, uh, while we're ensuring that we get packages to our customers and essential items to our customers, uh, they have uh, enhanced safety tremendously. We of course, our employees live in the communities around the world where they work, uh, so they're not immune from the coronavirus. But we have seen that our infection rates, uh, and we've looked at this closely in the United States, our infection rates tend to be significantly lower uh, in the communities where our employees work than in the surrounding communities, i.e., you know, Amazon employees are, are, are infected uh, far less frequently than uh, those in their surrounding communities. It makes sense. Bring it to the United States now, because there's a lot of people, too, saying, look, go back to what we saw in, in March, April. What we saw in Europe was a prelude to then what happened in the United States. And clearly, in certain states, we've got record number of cases here, too. Jay, what about the U.S., particularly ahead of Thanksgiving? Sure. Well, we've, uh, as you know, just been through uh, uh, almost a test run of what the holiday hmm. season will look like, because we had Prime Day instead of in the middle of the year, just in October. Uh, just a uh, couple of weeks ago, uh, which creates enormous uh, demand, uh, and uh, it went extraordinarily smoothly. Uh, we are monitoring the coronavirus pandemic situation in the United States, of course, very closely. Uh, we uh, are taking extra measures to ensure that our employees are safe. Uh, we One, one uh, piece of data that we, we find uh, super important when we look at this is when we have a, an employee who tests positive or is presumed to be positive, that person is obviously uh, uh, self-quarantines. Make, we make sure that he or she has the health care uh, that they need. And then we do contact tracing. And in the beginning, in March, when we were doing this, we had four, for every one employee who tested positive, four employees would have to be quarantined because of that contact. Now we're down to a fraction of a person per uh, positive test, which is a reflection of the kind of measures we're taking so that uh, we're ensuring within our facilities employees are not exposed uh, in the way that they were prior to the pandemic. Yeah, it's brilliant to hear. It's also heartbreaking from a benefits of contract tracing perspective. I hope you're speaking to our local authorities about this. Talk to me about yes. Project Ultraviolet, um, if that's what it's called. There are sure. rumors that you've got your own <laughs> testing capabilities now set up, labs that you use specifically as well. I know we talked about this last time. Jay, how advanced are you on this front? Well, we recognized, and, and, and Jeff Bezos, our CEO, recognized very early in this process that one key uh, for uh, ensuring the security and safety of our employees was the same as it would be for people around the country and the globe, which is uh, mass testing. 
and testing of asymptomatic people. So uh, that includes, uh, you know, our what we've now set up testing processes, which is you know additional to anything that already exists. So we're not taking testing capacity from other sources, and we're running about fifty thousand tests a day, uh, primarily in the United States, and uh, but we've also launched a pilot program in the UK. We have a lab in Manchester, I believe, uh, and uh, we're, uh, we've done thousands of tests so far in the UK and continue to hope to expand that program in the UK and around the EU. Yeah, I mean, 50,000 tests a day is, uh, is certainly something you are, I believe, now. This it's getting largest. there. We have, our goal is to obviously increase that substantially. By how much? How much do you think you can reasonably do? Well, we have, as you know, um, uh, a million plus employees uh, globally. Right. So uh, it's going to vary. What we can do in uh, other countries depends on uh, legal circumstances in those com uh, countries, the reporting uh, processes in those countries. But just if you look at the U.S., for example, uh, we uh, hope to, I, I don't have a firm figure for you, but we hope to expand that number substantially to a point where, you know, we, our employees are getting, our asymptomatic employees are being tested uh, regularly across our system. You are, I believe, the second largest employer in the United States, and I've seen a petition pop up, several thousand people signing it, saying that we want paid time off to vote. It is clearly a critically important election, as they all are. Jay, what about that? Can Amazon provide paid time for people to go up and queue? I mean, I've had cases of four, five, six, seven, eight hours. People can't afford to take that time off work. Can you do something here? Well, what we are doing, uh, Julia, is ensuring that all of our employees have uh, all the information they need to find out uh, how to vote and how to vote most efficiently. Uh, one, notwithstanding the efforts in this country to make this as difficult as possible, which I think are uh, tragic and unfortunate, and uh, I oppose strongly, uh, there, have been, there has been a great increase in the United States in uh, mail-in balloting, in early voting, uh, which means you don't have to wait till election day to stand in line. You can go early. You can go at times that work for you. So there are only about six states in the country where that's not possible out of 50. Uh, and what we have said to our employees is if you can't uh, find a way to vote uh, otherwise, we, you know, we will work with you to ensure that you have the time off you need to vote. Walmart, Starbucks, Twitter have all announced that they'll give workers some additional paid time off. I know they don't have as many employees as you, but does Amazon look bad in this situation, not providing the support? We're, we're, we're doing well. We are providing support, and we are uh, uh, working with our employees. If they uh, if they are in a circumstance where they need uh, time off to vote, we're we're making that happen. Okay, case by case basis, Jay. Great to have you with us. Uh, thank you so much, as always. Jay Carney there, Senior Vice President at Amazon. Thank you. All right, after the break, Senator Ted Cruz holds the CEO of Twitter to the flame. Just watch this. Mr. Dorsey, who the elected you? Raised temperatures and the debate about policing content on the web. Dorsey's defense after the break. comments on social media know the discussion usually flies off topic. Well, that pretty much sums up Wednesday's big tech hearing in the Senate. The hearing was supposed to be about changing a law, offering them legal protection in content moderation. Donio Sullivan joins me now. Um, talk to me about the defence. Did they stay on subject? 
Hey, Julia. Yeah, I don't want to say I told you so, but I told you so. <laughs> you uh, can, my friend. <laughs> uh, this hearing coming six days before the election was always uh, going to be a bit of a mess. I mean, it was about a really important fundamental law to the Internet and how people communicate online. Uh, but of course, it really was just hijacked uh, as on a sort of a partisan issue. You know, there were some interesting uh, aspects of it. I mean, Senator Ted Cruz, who did do a lot of grandstanding um, and, and really tried to make, I guess, a name for himself uh, yesterday, uh, as it comes to all of this, uh, did push Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey on his company's uh, temporary blocking of an unsubstantiated story from the New York Post uh, about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. Um, And then he also asked a sort of interesting question. He pointed out to Dorsey that um, the Twitter does label misinformation about the election uh, from President Trump and from anybody. Uh, Cruz asked, if you're if you're labeling this sort of information, if you're if you're making judgment calls on this, why aren't you also um, removing or fact checking uh, people who deny the Holocaust happened? People who you know push that uh, ridiculous conspiracy theory. And Dorsey didn't really have a good answer for that. So you know, I think it was sort of emblematic of the of the slippery slope that these platforms find themselves, and why they so desperately don't want to get into the fact checking business because they know. Once they've started now saying, well, we're going to call out COVID misinformation, we're going to call out election misinformation, questions will come. Very good questions, too, in terms of why aren't they taking action on other ridiculous and sometimes uh, dangerous misinformation. Um, So there were some interesting parts of it, but for the most part, it was very, very political yesterday, which is a shame, really, because, you know, these senators have an opportunity that most of us don't have the opportunity to hold these executives to account and ask them questions directly julia the problem is they let politics get in the way and if you're going to remove the liability shield you have to give them rules over what can be allowed and what can't be quite frankly so it opens pandora's box Tony, you and i have both spoken to uh, matthew bonassi he was on our show yesterday he's a victim of a conspiracy theory related to covid and faced death threats this is what he had to say to us yesterday If uh, social media companies uh, can't be good stewards and they refuse to take action uh, when uh, when victims uh, let them know about it, then we as victims should be able to hold hold those companies liable for the content that's that's on their uh, platforms. The victim should be able to hold them accountable. I tweeted that interview out. Matthew's got 29 Twitter followers. And then I looked at George West, one of the conspiracy theorists, so-called, that was spreading this information. And he's got tens of thousands. The, the most subjective voices have the loudest and the furthest reach. And that's part of the problem, too. Yeah, and I mean, look, we'd spend a lot of time talking about how all of what social media and, and these platforms do, how it plays out in terms of politics. But, you know, somebody like Matt Benassi there, whose family has been a victim of a totally baseless conspiracy theory that has led their family to get death threats. Uh, these are the sort of real victims of the social media platforms. And, you know, Matt, as he mentioned there, was reporting videos that were harassing his family, mentioning his family over and over and over again to these social media platforms. And YouTube, for the most part, didn't do a lot about it until one CNN contacted them. And even after that, uh, uh, YouTube left up a lot of these videos until a U.S. senator read our story 
and contacted them. So that's the sort of levels that if, if you want, if you're just a regular person who finds yourself the victim of a cyber harassment uh, campaign, unless a major media outlet picks this up, picks up your story or a US senator, you're really up against it with these platforms. Yeah, you are. David and Goliath, something has to change. Donia Sullivan, great job on that, promoting victims' voices. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chastely. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.